Hello, hello. Oh, there we go. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Peter Reads Moby Dick, because it wouldn't be Peter Reads Moby Dick without some technical difficulties at the beginning. So, this will be episode three. We just got done listening to a sermon at the church about Jonah and the whale. And that was quite dramatic, and now we're done with that, and we're going to get to a more relaxing part, shall we say. So, chapter 10, A Bosom Friend. Returning to the spouter inn from the chapel, I found Queequeg there quite alone, he having left the chapel before the benediction some time. He was sitting on a bench before the fire, with his feet on the stove hearth, and in one hand was holding close up to his face that little negro idol of his, peering hard into its face, and with a jackknife gently whittling away at its nose, meanwhile humming to himself in his heathenish way. But being now interrupted, he put up the image, and pretty soon, going to the table, took up a large book there, and placing it on his lap, began counting his pages with deliberate regularity. At every fiftieth page, as I fancied, stopping a moment, looking vacantly around him, and giving utterance to a long-drawn, gurgling whistle of astonishment. He would then begin at the next fifty, seeming to commence at number one each time, as though he could not count more than fifty, and it was only by such a large number of fifties being found together that his astonishment at the multitude of pages was excited. With much interest, I sat watching him. Savage though he was, and hideously marred about the face, at least to my taste, his countenance had yet had a something in it, which was by no means disagreeable. You cannot hide the soul. Through all his unearthly tattooings, I saw, thought I saw the traces of a simple, honest heart, and in his large, deep eyes, fiery, black, and bold, there seemed tokens of a spirit that would dare a thousand devils. And besides all this, there was a certain lofty bearing about the pagan, which even his uncouthness could not altogether maim. He looked like a man who had never cringed and never had had a creditor. A man who would, whether it was too, that his head being shaved, his forehead was drawn out in free, freer and brighter relief, and looked more expansive than it otherwise would. This I will not venture to decide, but certain it was his head that was phrenologically an excellent one. It may seem ridiculous, but it reminded me of General Washington's head, as seen in the popular busts of him. It had the same long, regularly graded, retreating slope from above the brows, which were likewise very projecting, like two long promontories thickly wooded on top. Queequeg was George Washington, cannibalistically developed. Whilst I th was thus looking closely, closely scanning him, half pretending, meanwhile, to be looking out at the storm from the casement, he never heeded my presence, never troubled himself with so much as a single glance, but appeared wholly occupied with counting the pages of the marvelous book. Considering how sociably we had been sleeping together the night previous, and especially considering the affectionate arm I had found thrown over me upon waking in the morning, I thought this indifference of his was very strange. But savages are strange beings. At times you do not know exactly how to take them. At first they are overawing. Their calm self-collectedness of simplicity seems a Socratic wisdom. I had noticed also that Queequeg never consorted at all, but or but very little, with the other seamen in the inn. 
He made no advances whatever. He appeared to have no desire to enlarge the circle of his acquaintances. All this struck me as mighty singular, yet, upon second thoughts, there was something almost sublime in it. Here was a man almost 20,000 miles from home, by the way of Cape Horn, that is, which was the only way he could get there, thrown among people as strange to him as though he were in the planet Jupiter, and yet he seemed entirely at his ease, preserving the utmost serenity, content with his own companionship, always equal to himself. Surely this was a touch of fine philosophy, though no doubt he had never heard there was such a thing as that. But perhaps to be true philosophers, we mortals should not be conscious of so living or so striving. So soon as I hear that such or such a man gives himself out for a philosopher, I conclude, like that dyspeptic old woman, he must have broken his digester. As I sat there in that now lonely room, the fire burning low, in that mild stage when, after its first intensity has warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at, the evening shades and phantoms gathering around the casements and peering in upon a silent, solitary twain, the storm booming about in so solemn swells, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing, soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits. Wild he was, a very sight of sights to see, yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him. And those same things that would have repelled most others, they were the very magnets that thus drew me. I'll try a pagan friend, thought I, since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy. I drew my bench near him, and made some friendly signs and hints, doing my best to talk with him meanwhile. At first he little noticed these advances, but presently, upon my referring to his last night's hospitalities, he made out to ask me whether we were again to be bedfellows. I told him yes, whereat I thought he looked pleased, perhaps a little complimented. We then turned over the book together, and I endeavored to explain to him the purpose of the printing, and the meaning of the few pictures that were in it. Thus I soon engaged his interest, and from that we went to jabbering the best we could about the various outer sights to be seen in this famous town. Soon I proposed a social smoke, and, producing his pouch and tomahawk, he quiet quietly offered me a puff. And then we sat exchanging puffs from that wild pipe of his, and keeping it regularly passing between us. If there yet lurked any ice of indifference towards me in the pagan's breast, this pleasant, genial smoke we had soon thawed it out and left us cronies. He seemed to take to me quite as naturally as, and unbiddenly as I to him, and when our smoke was over, he pressed his forehead against mine, clasped me around the waist, and said that henceforth, henceforth we were married, meaning, in his country's phrase, that we were bosom friends. He would gladly die for me, if need should be. In a countryman, this sudden flame of friendship would have seemed far too premature, a thing to be much distrusted. But in this simple savage, those old rules would not apply. After supper, and another social chat and smoke, we went to our room together. He made me a present of his embalmed head, took out his enormous tobacco wallet, and groping under the tobacco, drew out some thirty dollars in silver, then spreading them on the table, and mechanically dividing them into two equal portions, pushed one of them towards me, and said it was mine. I was going to remonstrate, but he silenced me by pouring them into my trousers' pockets. I let them stay. He then went about his evening prayers, 
took out his idols, and removed the paper fireboard. By certain signs and symptoms, I thought he seemed anxious for me to join him. But well knowing what was to follow, I deliberated a moment whether, in case he invited me, I would comply or otherwise. I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian Church. How then could I unite with this wild idolater in worshipping his piece of wood? But what is worth worship, thought I? Do you suppose now, Ishmael, that the magnanimous god of heaven and earth, pagans and all included, can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood? Impossible. But what is worship? To do the will of God? That is worship. And what is the will of God? To do to my fellow man what I would have my fellow man do to do to me. That is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. And what do I wish that this Queequeg would do to me? Why, unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form of worship. Consequently, I must then unite with him inherit his. Ergo, I must turn idolater. So I kindled the shavings, helped prop up the innocent little idol, offered him burnt biscuit with Queequeg, salamed before him twice or thrice, kissed his nose, and that done, we undressed and went to bed, at peace with our own consciences and all the world. But we did not go to sleep without some little chat. How it is, I know not, but there is no place like a bed for confidential disclosures between friends. Man and wife, they say, there open the very bottom of their souls to each other, and some old couples often lie and chat over old times till nearly morning. Thus then, in our heart's honeymoon, lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving pair. Chapter 11. Nightgown. We had lain thus in bed, chatting and napping at short intervals, and Queequeg now and then affectionately throwing his brown tattooed legs over mine, and drawing them back. So entirely sociable and free and easy were we, when, at last, by reason of our confa confabulations, what little nappishness remained in us altogether departed, and we felt like getting up again, though daybreak was yet some time, some way down the future. Yes, we became very wakeful, so much so that our recumbent position began to grow wearisome, and by little and little we found ourselves sitting up, the clothes well tucked around us, leaning against the headboard with our four knees drawn up close together, and our two noses bending over them, as if our knee pans were warming pans. We felt very nice and snug, the more so since it was so chilly out of doors, indeed out of bedclothes too, seeing that there was no fire in the room. The more so, I say, because truly to enjoy bodily warmth, some small part of you must be cold, for there is no quality in this world that is not what it is merely by contrast. Nothing exists in itself. If you so flatter yourself that you are all over comfortable and have been so a long time, then you cannot be said to be comfortable any more. But if, like Queequeg and me in the bed, the tip of your nose or the crown of your head be slightly chilled, why then, indeed, in the general consciousness you feel most delightfully and unmistakably warm? For this reason, a sleeping apartment should never be furnished with a fire, which is one of the luxurious discomforts of the rich. For the height of this sort of deliciousness is to have nothing but the blanket between you and your snugness, and the cold of the outer air. Then there you lie like the one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. We had been sitting in this crouching manner for some time, when all at once I thought I would open my eyes. For when, between sheets, whether by day or by night, and whether asleep or awake, 
I have a way of always keeping my eyes shut in order the more to concentrate the snugness of being in bed. Because no man can ever feel his own identity aright except his eyes be closed, as if darkness were indeed the proper element of our essences, though light be more congenial to our clayey part. Upon opening my eyes then, and coming out of my own pleasant and self-created darkness into the imposed and coarse outer gloom of the unilluminated twelve o'clock at night, I experienced a disagreeable revulsion, nor did I at all object to the hint from Queequeg that perhaps it was best to strike a light, seeing that we were so wide awake, and besides he felt a strong desire to have a few quiet puffs from his tomahawk. Be it said, that although I had felt such a strong repugnance to his smoking in the bed the night before, yet we see how elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love once comes to bend them. For now I like nothing better than, than to have Queequeg smoking by, by me, even in bed, because he seemed to be full of such serene household joy then. I no more felt unduly concerned for the landlord's policy of insurance. I was only alive to the convinced, condensed confidential comfortableness of sharing a pipe and a blanket with a real friend. With our shaggy jackets drawn about our shoulders, we now passed the tomahawk from one to the other, till slowly there grew over us a blue hanging tester of smoke illuminated by the flame of the new-lit lamp. Whether it was that this undulating tester rolled the savage away to far distant scenes, I know not. But he now spoke of his native island, and eager to hear the, his history, I begged him to go on and tell it. He gladly complied, though at the time I but ill-comprehended not a few of his words. Yet subsequent disclosures, when I had become more familiar with his broken phraseology, now enabled to present the whole story, such as it may prove, in the mere skeleton I give. Chapter 12. Biographical. Queequeg was a native of Cocovoco, an island far away to the west and south. It is not down in any map. True places never are. When a new hatched savage running wild about his native woodlands in a grass clout, followed by the nibbling goats, as if he were a green sapling, even then in Queequeg's ambitious soul lurked a strong desire to see something more of Christendom than a specimen whaler or two. His father was a high chief, a king, his uncle a high priest, and on the maternal side he boasted ants who were the wives of unconquerable warriors. There was excellent blood in his veins, royal stuff, though sadly vitiated, I think, by the cannibal propensity he nourished in his untutored youth. A sag harbor ship visited his father's bay, and Queequeg sought a passage to Christian lands. But the ship, having her full complement of seamen, spurned his suit, and not all the king his father's influences could prevail. But Queequeg vowed a vow. Alone in his canoe, he paddled off to a distant strait, which he knew the ship must pass through when she quitted the island. On one side was a coral reef, on the other a low tongue of land, covered with mangrove thickets that grew out into the water. Hiding his canoe, still afloat among these thickets, with its prow seaward, he sat down in the stern, paddle low in hand, and when the ship was gliding by, like a flash he darted out, gained her side, and w with one backward dash of his foot capsized and sank his canoe, climbed up the chains, and throwing himself at full length upon the deck, grappled a ring bolt there, and swore not to let it go, though hacked in pieces. 
In vain, the captain threatened to throw him overboard, suspended a cutlass over his naked wrists. Queequeg was the, the son of a king, and Queequeg budged not. Struck by his desperate dauntlessness and his wild desire to visit Christendom, the captain at last relented and told him he might make himself at home. But this fine young savage, the Sea Prince of Wales, never saw the captain's cabin. They put him down among the sailors and made a whaleman of him. But like Tsar Peter, content to toil in the shipyards of foreign cities, Queequeg disdained no seeming ignominy, if thereby he might happily gain the power of enlightening his untutored countrymen. For at bottom, so he told me, he was actuated by a profound desire to learn among the Christians, the arts whereby to make his people still happier than they were, and more than that, still better than they were. But alas, the practices of whalemen soon convinced him that even Christians could be both miserable and wicked infinitely more so than all his father's heathens. Arriving at last in old Sag Har Harbor and seeing what the sailors did there, and then going on to Nantucket and seeing how they spent their wages in that place also, poor Queequeg gave it up for lost. Thought he, it's a wicked world and all meridians, I'll die a pagan. And thus an old idolater at heart, he yet lived among these Christians, wore their clothes, and tried to talk their gibberish. Hence the queer ways about him, though now some time from home. By hints, I asked him whether he did not propose going back and having a coronation, since he might now consider his father dead and gone, he being very old and feeble at the last accounts. He answered no, not yet, and added that he was fearful cri Christianity, or rather Christians, had unfitted him for ascending the pure and undefiled throne of thirty pagan kings before him. But by and by, he said, he would return, as soon as he felt himself baptized again. For the nonce, however, he proposed to sail about, and sow his wild oats in all four oceans. They had made a harpooner of him, and that barbed iron was in lieu of a scepter now. I asked him what might be his immediate purpose, touching his, uh, his further mo future movements. He answered, to go to sea again, in his old vocation. Upon this, I told him that whaling was my own design and informed him of my intention to sail out of Nantucket, as being the most promising port for an adventurous whaleman to embark from. He at once resolved me to accompany, to the, accompany me to that island, ship aboard the same vessel, get into the same watch, the same boat, the same mess with me, in short, to share my every hap, with both my hands and his, boldly dip into the potluck of both worlds. To all this, I joyously assented, and besides the affection I now felt for Queequeg, he was an experienced harpooner, and as such, could not fail to be of great usefulness to one who, like me, was wholly ignorant of the mysteries of whaling, though well acquainted with the sea, as known to, mo as known to merchant seamen. His story being ended with his pipe's last dying puff, Queequeg embraced me, pressed his forehead against mine, and blowing out the light, we rolled over from each other, this way and that, and very soon were sleeping. Chapter 13. Wheelbarrow. Next morning, Monday, after disposing of the embalmed head to a barber, for a block, I settled my own and comrade's bill, using, however my, however, my comrade's money. The grinning landlord, as well as the boarders, 
seemed amazingly tickled at the sudden friendship which had sprung up between me and Queequeg, especially as Peter Coffin's cock and bull stories about him had previously so much alarmed me concerning the very person who I now companied with. We borrowed a wheelbarrow, and embarking our things, including my own poor carpet bag and Queequeg's canvas sack and hammock, away we went down to the moss. The little Nantucket packet schooner moored at the wharf. As we were going along, the people stared, not at Queequeg so much, for they were used to seeing cannibals like him in their streets, but at seeing him and me upon such confidential terms. But we heeded them not, going along and wheeling the barrow by turns, and Queequeg now and then stopping to adjust the sheath on his harpoon barbs. I asked him why he carried such a troublesome thing with him ashore, and whether all whaling ships did not find their own harpoons. To this, in substance, he replied, that though what I hinted was true enough, yet he had a particular affection for his own harpoon, because it was of assured stuff, well tried in many a mortal combat, and deeply intimate with the hearts of whales. In short, like many inland reapers and mowers, who go into the farmer's meadows armed with their own scythes, though in no wise obliged to furnish them, even so, Queequeg, for his own private reasons, preferred his own harpoon. Shifting the barrow from my hand to his, he told me a funny story about the first wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow he had ever seen. It was in Sag Harbor. The owners of this ship, it seems, had lent him one, in which to carry his heavy chest to his boarding house. Not to seem ignorant about the thing, though in truth he was entirely so, concerning the precise way in which to manage the barrow, Queequeg put his chest upon it, lashes it fast, and then shoulders the barrow and marches up the wharf. Why, said I, Queequeg, you might have known better than that, one would think. Didn't the people laugh? Upon this, he told me another story. The people of his island of Rokovoko, it seems, at their wedding feasts, expressed the fragrant water of young coconuts into a large stained calabash, like a punch bowl. And this punch bowl always forms the great central ornament on the braided mat where the feast is held. Now a certain grand merchant ship once touched at Rokovoko, and its commander, from all accounts, a very stately, punctilious gentleman, at least for a sea captain, this commander was invited to the wedding feast of Queequeg's sister, a pretty young princess just turned of ten. Well, when all the wedding guests were assembled at the bride's bamboo cottage, this captain matches, marches in, and being assigned the post of honor, placed himself over against the punch bowl, and between the high priest and his majesty, the king, Queequeg's father. Grace being said, for those people have their grace as well as we, Though Queequeg told me that unlike us, who at such times look downwards to our platters, they, on the contrary, copying the ducks, glance upwards to the great giver of all feasts. Grace, I say, being said, the high priest opens the banquet by the imm immemorial ceremony of the island, that is, dipping his consecrated and conse consecrating fingers into the bowl before the blessed beverage circulates. Seeing himself placed next to the priest, and noting the ceremony, and thinking himself, being captain of a ship, as having plain precedence over a mere island king, especially in the king's own house, the captain coolly proceeds to wash his hands in the punch bowl, taking it, I, su I suppose, for a huge finger glass. Now, said Queequeg, what do you think now? Didn't our people laugh? At last, passage paid and luggage safe, 
We stood on board the schooner. Hoisting sail, it glided down the Akushnet River. On one side, New Bedford rose in terraces of streets, their ice-covered trees all glittering in the clear, cold air. Huge hills and mountains of, of casks on casks were piled upon her wharves, and side by side, the world-wandering whale ships lay silent and safely moored at last. While from others came a sound of carpenters and coopers, with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that new cruises were on the start, that one most long perilous, that one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for aye. Such is the endlessness, yeah, the intolerableness of all earthly effort. Gaining the more open water, the bracing breeze waxed fresh. The little moss tossed the quick foam from her brows, as a young colt his snortings. How I snuffed that tartar air! How I spurned that turnpike earth! That common highway all over dented with the marks of slavish heels and hoofs, and turned me to admire the magnanimity, mag magnanimity of the sea which will permit no records. At the same foam fountain, Queequeg seemed to drink and reel with me. His dusky nostrils swelled apart. He showed his filed and pointed teeth. On, on we flew, and our offing gained that mosted homage to the blast. Ducked and dived her brows as a slave before the sultan. Sideways leaning, we sideways darted, every rope yarn tingling like a wire the two tall masts buckling like Indian canes in land tornadoes. So full of this reeling scene were we, as we stood by the plunging bowsprit, that for some time we did not notice the jeering glances of the passengers, a lubber-like assembly, who marveled that the two fellow beings could be so companionable, as though a white man were anything more dignified than a whitewashed negro. But there were some boobies and bumpkins there, who, by their intense greenness, must have come from the heart and center of all verdure. Queequeg caught one of these young saplings mimicking him behind his back. I thought the bumpkin's hour of doom was come. Dropping his harpoon, the brawny savage caught him in his arms, and by almost miraculous dexterity and strength, sent him high up bodily into the air. Then slightly tapping his stern in mid-somerset, the fellow landed with bursting lungs upon his feet. While Queequeg, turning his back upon him, lighted his tomahawk pipe, and passed it to me for a puff. Captain! Captain! yelled the bumpkin, running towards the, that officer. Captain! Captain! Here's the devil! Hello you, sir! cried the captain, a gaunt rib of the sea, stalking up to Queequeg. What in thunder do you mean by that? Don't you know you might have killed that chap? What him say? Say Queequeg, said Queequeg, as he mildly turned to me. He say said I, that you come near Killy, that man there, pointing to the still-shivering greenhorn. Killy? cried Queequeg, twisting his tattooed face into an unearthly expression of disdain. Ah, him bevy smally fishy. Queequeg no Killy so small fishy. Queequeg Killy big whale. Look you, roared the captain. I'll kill you, you cannibal. If you try any more of your tricks aboard here, so mind your eye. But it so happened just then that it was high, high time for the captain to mind his own eye.
The prodigious strain upon the mainsail had parted the weather sheet, and the tremendous boom was now flying from side to side, completely sweeping the entire after part of the deck. The poor fellow whom Queequeg had handled so roughly was swept overboard. All hands were in a panic, and to attempt snatching at the boom to stay it seemed madness. It flew from right to left and back again, almost in one ticking of a watch, and every instant seemed on the point of snapping into splinters. Nothing was done, and nothing seemed capable of being done. Those on deck rushed toward the bows, and stood eyeing the boom as if it was the lower jaw of an exasperated whale. In the midst of the, this consternation, Queequeg dropped deftly to his knees, and crawling under the path of the boom, whipped hold of the rope, secured one end to the bulwarks, and then flinging the other like a lasso, caught it round the boom as it swept over his head, and at the next jerk, the spar was that way trapped, and all was clear. The schooner was run into the wind, and while the hands were clearing away from the stern boat, Queequeg, stripped to the waist, darted from the side with a long, living arc of a leap. For three minutes or so, he was seen swimming like a dog, throwing his long arms straight out before him, and by turn revealing his brawny shoulders through the freezing foam. I looked at the grand and glorious fellow, but saw no one to be saved. The greenhorn had long gone, gone down. Shooting himself perpendicularly from the water, Queequeg now took an instant's glance around him, and seeing, seeming to see just how matters were, dived down and disappeared. A few minutes more, and he rose again, one arm still striking out, and with the other dragging a lifeless form. The boat soon picked them up. The poor bumpkin was restored. All hands voted Queequeg a noble trump. The captain begged his pardon. From that hour I clothed Queequeg like a barnacle, yea, till poor Queequeg took his last long dive. Was there ever such unconsciousness? He did not seem to think that he at all deserved a medal from the humane and magnanimous societies. He only asked for water, fresh water, something to wipe the brine off. That done, he put on dry clothes, lighted his pipe, and leaning against the bulwarks, and mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself, It's a mutual joint stock world in all meridians. We cannibals must help these Christians. Chapter 14, Nantucket. Nothing more happened on the passage worthy of the mentioning. So, after a fine run, we safely arrived in Nantucket. Nantucket, take out your map and look at it. See what a real corner of the world it occupies. How it stands there, away offshore, more lonely than in the Eddystone Lighthouse. Look at it, a mere hillock, an elbow of sand, all beach without a background. There is more sand there than you can would use in 20 years as a substitute for blotting paper. Some gamesome whites will tell you that they have to plant seeds there, that they don't grow naturally, that they import Canada thistles, that they have to send beyond seas for a spile to stop a leak in an oil cask, that pieces of wood in Nantucket are carried about like bits of the true cross in Rome that people there plant toadstools before their houses to get under the shade in the summertime, that one blade of grass makes an oasis, three blades in a day's walk a prairie, that they wear quicksand shoes, something like Laplander snowshoes, that they are so shut up, 
belted about, every way enclosed, surrounded, and made an utter island of by the ocean, that to their very chairs and tables, small clams will sometimes be found adhering, as to the backs of sea turtles. But these extravaganza extravaganzas only show that Nantucket is no Illinois. Look now at the wondrous traditional story of how this island was settled by the red men. Thus goes the legend. In olden times, an eagle swooped down upon the New England coast and carried off an infant Indian in his talons. With loud lament, the parents saw their child born out of sight over the wide waters. They resolved to follow in the same direction. Setting out in their canoes, after a perilous passage, they discovered the island, and there they found an empty ivory casket, the poor little Indian skeleton. What wonder, then, that these Nantucketers, born on a beach, should take to the sea for a livelihood. They first caught crabs and quahogs in the sand. Grown bolder, they waded out with nets for mackerel. Some more experienced, they pushed off in boats and captured cod. And at last, launching a navy of great ships on the sea, explored this watery world, put an incessant belt of circumnavigations around it, peeped in at Bering Straits, and, in all seasons and all oceans, declared everlasting war with the mightiest animated mass that has survived the flood, most monstrous and most mountainous, the Himalayan salt sea mastodon, clothed with such portentousness of unconscious power that his very panics are more to be dreaded than his most fearless and malicious assaults. And thus have these naked Nantucketers, these sea hermits, issuing from their ant hill in the sea, overrun and conquered the watery world like so many Alexanders, parceling out among them the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, as to the three pirate powers did Poland. Let America add Mexico to Texas, and pile Cuba upon Canada. Let the English overswarm all India, and hang out their blazing banner from the sun. Two-thirds of this Terraqueous world are the Nantucketers, for the sea is his. He owns it, as emperors own empires, other seamen having but a right of way through it. Merchant ships are but extension bridges, armed ones but floating forts. Even pirates and privateers, though following the sea as highwaymen the road, they but plunder other ships, other fragments of the land like themselves without seeking to, to draw their living from the bottomless deep itself. The Nantucketer, he alone resides and riots on the sea. He alone, in Bible language, goes down to it in ships, to and fro plowing it as his own special plantation. There is his home. There lies his business, which a Noah's flood would not interrupt, though it overwhelmed all the millions in China. He lives on the sea, as prairie cocks in the prairie, he hides among the waves. He climbs them as chamois hunters climb the Alps. For years he knows not the land, so that when he comes to it at last, it smells like another world, more strangely than the moon would to an earthsman. With the sandless gull that at sunset folds her wings and is rocked to sleep between billows, so at nightfall the Nantucketer, out of sight of land, furls the sails, and lays him to his rest, while under his very pillow rush herds of walruses and whales.
Chapter 15. Chowder. It was quite late in the evening when the little moss came snugly to anchor, and Queequeg and I went ashore so we could attend to no business that day, at least none but a supper and a bed. The landlord of the Spouter Inn had recommended us to his cousin, Hosi Hussey of the Tripots, whom he asserted to be the proprietor of one of the best-kept hotels in all Nantucket. And moreover, he had assured us that Cousin Hosey, as he called him, was famous for his chowders. In short, he plainly hinted that we could not possibly do better than try potluck at the tripots. But the directions he had given us about keeping a yellow warehouse on our starboard hand till we opened a white church to the larboard, and then keeping that on the larboard hand till we made a corner three points to the starboard, and that done, then asked the first man we met where the place was. These crooked directions of his very much puzzled us at first, especially as, at the outset, Queequeg insisted that the yellow warehouse, our first point of departure, must be left of the larboard hand, whereas I had understood Peter Coffin to say it was the starboard. However, by dint of beating about a little in the dark, and now and then knocking up a peace peaceable inhabitant to inquire the way, we at last came to something which there was no mistaking. Two enormous wooden pots painted black, and suspended by asses' ears, swung from the cross trees of an old topmast, planted in front of an old doorway. The horns of the cross trees were sawed off on the other side, so that this old topmast looked not a little like a gallows. Perhaps I was oversensitive to such impressions at the time, but I could not help over I could not help staring at this gallows with a vague misgiving. A sort of crick was in my neck as I gazed up to the two remaining horns. Yes, two of them. One for Queequeg and one for me. It's ominous, thinks I. A coffin my innkeeper, at, upon landing in my first whaling port, tombstones staring at me in the whaleman's chapel, and here a gallows. And a pair of prodigious black pots, too. Are these last throwing out oblique hints touching Tophet? I was called from these reflections by the sight of a freckled woman with yellow hair and a yellow gown, standing in the porch of, of the inn, under a dull red lamp swinging there, that looked much like an injured eye, and carrying on a brisk scolding with a man in a purple woolen shirt. Get along with you, said she to the man, or I'll be combing you. Come on, Queequeg, said I. All right, there's Mrs. Hussey. And so, so it turned out, Mr. Hosey Hussey being from home, but leaving Mrs. Hussey entirely competent to attend to all his affairs. Upon making known our desires for a supper and a bed, Mrs. Hussey, postponing further scolding for the present, ushered us into a little room, and seating us at a table spread with the relics of a re recently concluded repast, turned round to us and said, Clamor Cod. What's that about Cods, ma'am? said I, with much politeness. Clam or cod, she repeated. A clam for supper, a cold clam, is that what you mean, Mrs. Hussey? says I. But that's a rather cold and clammy reception in the wintertime, ain't it, Mrs. Hussey? But being in a great hurry to resume scolding the man in the purple shirt, who was waiting for it in the entry, and seeming to hear nothing but the word clam, Mrs. Hussey hurried towards an open door leading to the kitchen, and bawling out, Clam for two! disappeared. Queequeg, said I, do you think that we can make out a supper for 
us both on one clam. However, a warm, savory steam from the kitchen served to belie the apparently cheerless prospect before us. But when that smoking chowder came in, the mystery was delightfully explained. Oh, sweet friends, hearken to me. It was made of small, juicy clams, scarcely bigger than hazelnuts, mixed with pounded chip biscuits and salted pork cut up into little flakes. The whole enriched with butter and plentifully seasoned with pepper and salt. Our appetites being sharpened by the frosty voyage, and in particular Queequeg, seeing his favorite fishing food before him, and the chowder being surpassingly excellent, we dispatched it with great expedition. When leaning back a moment and bethinking me of Mrs. Hussey's clam and cod announcement, I thought I would try a little experiment. Stepping to the kitchen door, I uttered the word cod with great emphasis and resumed my seat. In a few moments, the savory steam came forth again, but with a different flavor, and in good time, a fine cod chowder was placed before us. We resumed business, and while plying our spoons in the bowl, thinks I to myself, I wonder now if this here has any effect on the head. What's that stultifying saying about chowder-headed people? But look, Queequeg, ain't that a live eel in your bowl? Where's your harpoon? Fishiest of all fishy places was the tripods, which well deserved its name. For the pots there was always boiling chowder. Chowder for breakfast, and chowder for dinner, and chowder for supper, till you began to look for fish bones coming through your clothes. The area before the house was paved with clamshells. Mrs. Hussey wore a polished necklace of codfish vertebra, and Hussey Hussey wore a polished necklace, no, had his account books bound in superior old sharkskin. There was a fishy flavor to the milk, too, which I could not at all account for, till one morning, happening to take a stroll along the beach among some fishermen's boats, I saw Hosey's brindling, brindled cow feeding on fish remnants and marching along the sand with each foot in a cod's decapitated head, looking very slipshod, I assure you. Supper concluded, we received a lamp and directions from Mrs. Hussey concerning the nearest way to bed. But, as Queequeg was about to precede me up the stairs, the lady reached forth her arm and demanded his harpoon. She allowed no harpoon in her chambers. Why not, said I. Every true whaleman sleeps with his harpoon. But why not? Because it's dangerous, says she. Ever since young Stig is coming from that un unfortunate voyage of his, when he was gone four years and a half, with only three barrels of isle, was found dead in my first floor back with his harpoon in his side, ever since then I allow no boarders to take such weapons into their rooms at night. So, Mr. Queequeg, for she had learned his name, I will just take this here iron and keep it for you till morning. But the chowder, clam a cod tomorrow for breakfast, men. Both, says I, and let's have a couple of smoked herring by way of variety. Okay, and the next chapter is long, so I suppose this will conclude chapter 15 of Moby Dick and episode 3 of Peter Reads Moby Dick. Please join us in two weeks, or of course catch us online, and we'll resume with chapter 16, The Ship. Thanks a lot for listening.